verses 11 through 16. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're just joining us here this morning, or weren't here the last couple of weeks, we have just begun a sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5 through 7, and it is in many ways Jesus' great sermon explaining his, his mission statement, his vision for this kingdom of heaven that he is coming to proclaim. Central to the message of Jesus is this idea that we as human beings are being called into relationship with him, a relationship that then transforms our relationship with everything else. That um, there is this sort of new creation that happens to us as we follow after Jesus. And what Jesus is trying to give us a vision of in these three chapters is the the constitution, the, the nature, the mission statement, the description of what that new creation is supposed to look like. So we prepare to look at this text where he continues to do that. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I pray that you might meet us here where we live, caught between two worlds, this new creation and new world that you are ushering in in Jesus Christ and the world that you have called us out of and in which we still live, a world that is in so many ways broken and full of pain. And I pray that you might teach and instruct us so that we might live as citizens of that coming world in this one. I pray that you would be with all of us as we hear your word, that you might teach and instruct our hearts, all of us sinners, as we meet it. And I pray that you would be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. What am I doing here? I think there's a point in pretty much every life where you end up asking some version of that question. What am I doing here? For some people, they find themselves asking that question when they've hit rock bottom. You know, when... When the foreclosure or the layoff has come or the addiction is spun out of control or the papers have been signed and the lawyer is left and they feel like they just have lost everything, they wonder, what am I doing here? But for a lot of people, I think it comes in the middle of daily routines, too. Another day of changing diapers or pushing around papers, another meatloaf dinner mechanically consumed, another night of falling asleep to the television glow, and then suddenly in the middle of it all you look around and say, what am I doing here? We were made by God to be creatures with purpose, not machines or robots, but men and women with a sense of mission and direction in life. And it's easy 
in the bustle of the day-to-day to lose sight of that. When we lose that sense of purpose, whether it's all at once or inch by inch, we're forced to confront the fact that we need it, that without it, all of the things that we do just don't make sense. That is true of each of us as individuals. That is also true of us together as God's people, the church in the world. It is easy for us to get lost in the busyness of week-to-week life, to just keep to keep building the thing up, right? To, to multiply the programs and activities and committees and events. I've been to churches that feel just like a well-oiled machine, right? That just kind of keeps chugging along with every cog in its place. But if we're to follow Christ, then not just individually, but also together, we have to ask, what are we doing here? That is, in many ways, what Jesus tries to tell us at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. He's laying the foundation still for what is to come. So first in the Beatitudes, he gave us this picture of what we as Christians are called to be, what it, what it means to be a Christian. Now, in these verses, he shifts his attention from each of us individually to the church and its place in the world and is seeking to articulate a vision of what the church is doing here what we as God's people are meant to be about. And that, I, that's a purpose that we need, right? There's a constant danger in every church, in every age, for, just, for us to just turn inward, to kind of just doing, keep doing the same things, to keep holding it together. We need that sense of purpose and mission, but, but we also often struggle because people give us so many different pictures of what that mission should be, right? What is the church supposed to be doing in the world? Is it supposed to be a conversion agency, a social program, a political action committee, a country club? We need a sense of mission, but we can feel lost about what it's supposed to be. And in this text, Jesus gives a simple summary of his mission for us as the church. We, he says, are to be salt and light. Salt and light. But what does that mean? What are those pictures supposed to teach us? Well, that's what I want us to ask this morning. I want us to spend some time working through these pictures, and in particular, I think that I want us to see that Jesus has three things that he wants these images to teach us. Our purpose in the world, our peculiarity from the world, and our posture toward the world. And peculiarity is there because I needed a word that started with P. I will acknowledge up front. But our purpose, our peculiarity, and our posture. First, our purpose, right? What are we doing here on earth? So Jesus says in verse 13 that we are to be salt, right? We're the salt of the world. What does that mean? Well, in our day, we think of salt primarily as seasoning, right? We think of it as a thing that tastes good, that we like to put on food even though our doctor tells us that we're not supposed to, um, and makes bad food bearable and good food delicious. But in Jesus' day, that wasn't what people thought of as salt's use, all right? I'm sure plenty of them liked the taste, but they lived in a world without refrigerators or freezers or any of the other ways that we have to preserve food. And so the main way that you would keep food from rotting in that world was to use salt on it. Salt was a preservative. It prevented decay and rot. Which tells us something about how Jesus pictures the world, right? The world, Jesus says, is a place of decay, that it's ruled by sin and that that's what sin does. It destroys things. That's true on an individual level, as people wound and hurt each other and themselves by their own choices. 
that's also true on the level of society, that there are injustices and corruption and violence and abuse in the world. And Jesus sees part of the role of the church, part of our calling, as standing against that decay, to act as a preservative to the surrounding world, to protect and heal the wounds and hurts that people experience, to struggle against injustice and corruption and abuse. And at the same time, Jesus also says that we are the light of the world. We're the light. And again, I don't think in our day we appreciate just how striking that is, right? Light in our day is everywhere. It's, it's always available. There are street lamps and headlights on cars and flashlights. But this is, this is a world before light bulbs and electricity, before even, even matchbooks and, you know, and, and handheld lighters. This is a world where the nights were dark. They were pitch black. So when Jesus says that we are like a city on a hill, that's meant to be a powerful picture. Just imagine, right, you're standing out in the desert on some road in this ancient world and everything is completely black, but off in the distance you see a city up on the hill with lamps burning on the window. And that is a shining point that provides hope and comfort, a beacon to navigate towards, a promise of welcome. So Jesus sees our role as a preservative and as bringers of a promise, a guiding light towards something more. Light in scripture is often used as a picture of God's truth. So part of our calling is to be about our testimony. We're supposed to speak the truth to the world. And at the same time, it's also about living out the truth. As Jesus says in verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're to pursue a life that shows forth God's truth. So what are we on earth to do? Our purpose is to work in this world as a preservative, to struggle against the brokenness of sin and evil, and our purpose is also to serve as carriers of a promise, to point people through our words and deeds towards the hope that's beyond just this world. There's this idea that some of us have that the more spiritual a person is, the less they have to do with the world, right? They're too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. But that is not how Jesus imagines Christians in the world. He sees us as very much called to engage with the people around us. In fact, the pictures he gives us here show us Jesus believes the world needs Christians. It needs us. If the world is decaying and we're supposed to be the preservative, that requires contact. A lot of contact, right? The way you preserve meat is by rubbing salt all over it. If the world is darkness and we're to shine light, that requires presence and visibility. That we are not called to be hidden in valleys, but to be cities on a hill. Those pictures also help us think about how we should engage the world. One of the questions people in the church love to ask is whether we should be helping people physically or proclaiming the gospel, right? There's all kinds of versions. Whether we should be caring for the poor or evangelizing. And they want to know which is it. And as is often the case with those sorts of questions, the picture of the church Jesus shows us would answer yes, that we should do both. So Jesus is calling us to engage with people in acts of love. That we, each of us, is called to live this out in our lives. We should be giving generously, helping charities, helping our neighbors. We should be serving our schools and soup kitchens, that we should be fighting the effects of sin with the people we know, praying for them and loving them. And Jesus is calling us to engage with the surrounding world 
with the truths of God's love. People living for money or pleasure or comfort or pride need to be shown a better way. People being crushed under the guilt and shame of their failings need the gospel. And we are the people that are called to share that hope that we have with them. Most of all, though, Jesus is calling us to do both of those things. To care for people in acts of love and to share the truths of God's love because it is what the world needs. We Christians sometimes moan about the moral decay of society. Here's the thing. According to Jesus' picture here, that's normal, right? Societies just decay. The means that Jesus says God has given to fight against that decay is us as the church. That we're God's given preservative, and insofar as we see those challenges in the world, it's because we are ceasing to do our job. That we've lost our saltiness. So for each of us, this is an invitation to think about how we can do that. Be salt and light. How in the neighborhoods where we live and the places where we work and the families that we are a part of, how we can be salt and light to those people. So we're given this purpose, to be salt and light. But each of these commands also comes with a warning. We are given a purpose, but it can only be achieved by maintaining our peculiarity, Jesus says. By maintaining our peculiarity, our otherness, the things that make us different from the world. So first, Jesus warns in verse 13 about compromising our saltiness, right? That if the salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. And we might wonder about this. How can salt not be salty anymore? It's salt, right? But again, this is a world before the kind of modern tools to refine things that we have. So what people thought of as salt was actually a bunch of different stuff that included salt in it, right? Just kind of this white powder that was various different substances. It was possible in that world if moisture got in or other things got mixed with the salt for the sodium chloride, the salt, to get leached out. And so you could no longer taste it. And so it looked like salt, white and powdery, but it didn't work as a preservative. And so Jesus is warning us against a sort of religion that still looks from the outside like Christianity. It looks like salt, but it has lost its bite. It has lost what actually makes it Christian. Jesus is warning against accepting a compromised faith. And then in verse 15, Jesus also warns us against covering our light. The image is that we light a lamp, but then we take a big cooking bowl and cover it up. In Jesus' world, where oil was expensive, a whole house would just have one oil lantern. And so, why in the world, Jesus is asking, would you take that one lantern and then put a bowl over it so that no one could see it? Which is to say that we as Christians are called to speak and live out the truth of God in a way that is unashamed. That if we believe what we say we do, that God's word is true and his commands are good, then we shouldn't shut them away and live in darkness, but we should let our light shine. In both cases, what Jesus is ultimately trying to say is that we as God's people should be peculiar. That salt tastes different from the food that it's in. Light is the opposite of darkness, and so the church is meant to be in the world. It's meant to be different. So we're being called not to compromise, to be faithful to all of God's word, to seek to always live it out and believe it, and we are being called not to cover it up. 
for being warned against shame or fear that would cause us to try to hide God's truth. One of the great dangers for the church in our day is the idea that in order to change the world, we need to be less Christian, that we need to compromise what we believe or how God calls us to act in order to be more relatable or more effective or more powerful. That can happen in all kinds of ways. It can happen theologically. We can decide that the truths the scripture teaches are just too hard to believe in our modern age, and so we need to downplay or deny them. It can happen morally. We can feel like the cross of Christ is too heavy, and so we try to lighten the load. Perhaps most of all, it can happen personally. We act like Jesus isn't as central to our lives as he should be, because we think other people might find it strange. I know there have been times in my life in this world that I have done all three. And that can come from a place of good intentions. We as Christians are called to be in the world, right? There have been movements within Christianity at certain points that have told us that we simply need to separate and leave the world and have nothing to do with it, that if you read a book by someone who isn't a pastor or heard a song that didn't say Lord a half dozen times, that your eternal soul was in peril, and that's misguided. And there is a sort of change that we as Christians are allowed to make as well, that we are called to make even. We are called to take the eternal truths of Christianity and speak them in ways that people understand. Theologians call that contextualization. And that's fine. That's even commanded. A few weeks ago, uh, if you were here, we had um, Abhishek and Jessica Kumar, who are going to be missionaries to India, right? And they shared with us some Hindi worship music that they would sing that's in the Hindi language and with uh, you know, indigenous Indian instruments and things. And that's very different, right? If you went to church with them in India, it would be very different from how it is here. And we've done the same thing, right? If, I mean, if you went to church in the first century with Jesus, it would they were not wearing button-up shirts or singing Hillsong songs or Wesley's hymns, Right? We're always doing that work, but while contextualization is fine, compromise is not. And in our desire to engage the world, we can wrongly think that our job is to look more and more like it. That we can confuse a call to contextualization with a call to compromise. And the latter one is toxic. The church is always supposed to be a prophetic community. A prophetic community. Prophetic, meaning that we bear witness to God's truth. We proclaim that Christ is Lord. We acknowledge God's rule and the sort of life he calls human beings to have, regardless of what the world thinks. It's prophetic, but prophetic not just by teaching certain truths or endorsing certain ideas or writing blog posts, but by living together as a community that that shows the goodness of God's design. By living together as a community in the midst of the world. Practically, one of the biggest things that this call um, to, to be peculiar means is that we cannot compromise any part of Jesus' teachings in order to be culturally appealing or socially respectable or politically powerful. And that last one, I just found myself thinking a lot this week as I spent time in this text. I, as a pastor, I am deeply committed to being nonpartisan. Scripture does touch on any number of politically related issues, and we should think about it, 
but the actual political world is messy and full of wolves, and so I refuse to enter into that fray as a leader of the church, and that's not going to change right now. But I do worry about us as we live right now in a very politically charged time in America. And so let me give you one nonpartisan thing that this text really reminds me of in this age. So we as Christians, we should vote and be involved in our democracy. And that means that there are times that we're going to make choices between lesser's evils, right? I mean, in some ways, in every election where King Jesus is, is not running for president, um, we're going to have to have some sense that candidates aren't perfect, And in this election, I know that many of us feel like that's particularly apparent. And it is permissible to make a a decision to vote for who you think is the lesser of two evils. Or to not vote for either of them, because you feel like they're equal. But, But it's permissible, all right? But I worry, because we're bad at doing it. Our hearts and the world around us always want us to take a lesser evil and end up convincing us that it's actually good. And that is how the church and the gospel gets compromised. We start off voting while you hold your nose, but it's like my friend who grew up on a feedlot, right? If you spend too much time around manure, you end up being unable to smell it. There are people that are so terrified of Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump that they will tell you that you have to support the other candidate. Not just vote for them, but support them, right? That you've got to say nothing but good things about them. Never question their failings because the alternative is so terrifying um, to think of the other person winning. But that's not what terrifies me as a pastor. What terrifies me is that for fear of one candidate, we as Christians will make peace with the moral failings of the other candidate that we do vote for that will stop criticizing our man or woman, that will even excuse their sins, say they're just foibles, or maybe even righteousness, because of how much we dislike the person they're running against. And we Christians, as a prophetic community, need to be equal opportunity critics. We need to shine the light of God's truth on everyone. If anything, we probably need to shine the most light on the people that we support. What worries me is that by thinking we are preserving the world or democracy or something by opposing this or that politician, no matter who they are, we might well end up compromising our own saltiness. That we might hide the light for fear that it would shine badly on the darkness in the person that we're supporting. That we as a church might gain worldly influence but lose our souls. I wonder sometimes if maybe we've already done quite a bit of that in our world. And each step we take down that path, Each time we are willing to shut our eyes to evil or call it good, those are steps that you don't easily come back from. That each one makes us look a little more like the world until we end up being indistinguishable. So that's my plea as I think about this political season. Do listen and think and vote for whoever seems best for you or for no one if that's what seems best to you. But please, let's not compromise the truth in doing it. Let's not lose sight of the lesser evil being evil just because we're afraid of a greater one. Let's not hide our light. So Jesus is giving us a purpose in the world, right? And he's calling us to be peculiar as a way of accomplishing that purpose. But I think that he also wants to teach us something crucial about the manner in which we do this, about our posture as we lean into that mission. So verses 11 and 12 of our text are really a bridge between the Beatitudes and the salt and light sayings. And I included them in this reading because I think they address a key question that comes up when we say the things that we've just said. So we talk about our purpose in the world, 
and how we're called to be a transforming presence. And many of us can hear that as thinking that we need to gain power in the world, right? That by exerting enough political influence or getting our people on TV or making denominational pronouncements on social issues or whatever, that that's how change is coming. And then we can be confused when we also hear this idea that we're supposed to be peculiar and different from the world. That can leave us scratching our heads. Because when you talk about being a prophetic community, about things like how we need to never deny the moral failings of the people that we support, it seems like that can work across purposes. Aren't we risking our power by being peculiar like that? The same question can come in other ways, too. For instance, there are people who think that the commands that we talked about this morning should mean that we should be, well, jerks, right? Jerks for Jesus. That being the salt of the earth means finding people's wounds and rubbing salt in them. That being the light of the world means shining it in people's eyes. And what both that idea and the question we asked before it have in common is that they miss the fact that as we embark on this mission, our posture is meant to be one of persecution and powerlessness. Our posture should be as those persecuted and powerless. What response does Jesus expect the world to have to Christians? He tells us in verse 11, he says, People will insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then he says, Therefore thou shalt smite them in the mouth, right? Thou shalt seize the reins of power and protect yourselves and show them who's boss. That's what he says? No. Jesus says that we will be persecuted and that we should rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. How can he say this? It is not that he wants us to pretend that persecution is pleasant, all right? Scripture consistently sees persecution and suffering as things that are to be mourned, but it is that for Jesus... That is exactly how things are supposed to work in this world. We are supposed to suffer persecution and rejection. I mean, our Savior did, right? We, we, we follow a king who was unjustly accused and illegally arrested and beaten and mocked and executed. Which means that we probably shouldn't expect that we will only and always be applauded and respected and liked. We should not find it unthinkable that we as Christians might also be insulted or looked at strangely. But it's more than just that we should expect persecution. The thing about Jesus' suffering is that somehow it was the means through which his work was accomplished. Have you ever thought about that? That what we as Christians believe is that somehow by surrendering himself to persecution and suffering and death, that Christ somehow actually exercised power. It's Colossians 2.15, which we looked at a few months ago, puts it, At the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus, in Jesus' crucifixion. That the way we as Christians change the world is actually in some ways by suffering, by surrendering power, by subjecting ourselves to persecution and being faithful in the midst of it. And it's really hard for me to explain how that works logically. So instead, let me try to explain it with a story. There was this group of soldiers in the Roman Empire a few hundred years ago. Um, Or sorry, a few hundred years after Jesus, which is more than a few hundred years ago. (laughs) The emperor issued a decree that every civil servant had to offer sacrifices to God. And these 40 soldiers stationed in winter barracks in Armenia 
had recently become Christians, and they refused. And because of their insubordination, their commander took them and stripped them naked and had them stand out on the middle of this frozen lake all night. And he had this warm bathhouse prepared with this jailer, you know, who had been imprisoning them, standing by it, and he was there to ensure that they would only be allowed into the bathhouse if they would offer these prayers to the emperor. And as the jailer and some guards stood watch, um, out on the ice, one of the men struck up this hymn, Forty soldiers for Christ, we shall not depart from you as long as you give us life. We shall call upon your name, whom all creation praises. On you we have hoped, and we are not ashamed. And as the hours dragged on, the soldiers continued to sing, despite the fact that they were slowly freezing to death. And finally, one of the soldiers caved, and he abandoned his friends and staggered back to shore. And it seemed like the moment of truth, right? The moment when the group of men would give up and recant. But as that one soldier who had surrendered crawled into the heated bathhouse, um, the voices picked up once more out on the ice, 39 soldiers for Christ. And the jailer on the banks had been watching all of this. And he saw that even in the face of betrayal, these people were still willing to suffer and die. The jailer, he must have caught some glimpse of God's glory in that moment, right? Because... um, Because he suddenly leapt to his feet and stripped off his armor and walked out onto the ice and yelled, No, there are 40 soldiers for Christ. And in the morning, all 40 men were found dead on the ice, frozen together. And here's my question, right? What in the world changed the jailer's mind? This is a person who is in a position of power, right? I mean, a persecutor and a person who is safe and comfortable What changed his mind was not the clever arguments of these 40 soldiers out on the ice. It wasn't the fact that they somehow had power or authority to declare truth to him. The thing that led him to go out and be martyred with these Christians was their suffering. That by giving up the reins of power and accepting the persecution of the world, they stood as a testimony to a greater world that all the power and glory of Rome could not touch. And our calling as Christians is to do the same thing. To be salt and light to the world, but to do so with a posture that accepts persecution and powerlessness. That should affect the way we think about things like our country. Not that it isn't good for us to seek to protect things like religious liberty in America, because it is, but too often the way we talk about those freedoms sounds like we think that the church will fall if those in power do not protect us. But think about Rome. It isn't just that jailer. Somehow, within 300 years of Jesus' execution, the church had become the dominant religion in the empire. And why is that? The church was dedicated to serving the poor and broken around them and testifying to the truth even if they were killed for it. It's interesting, there's some ancient correspondence you can find between people within the Roman government trying to deal with early Christians. And what's fascinating is this note of desperation that they seem to have. Because what they say over and over is, we don't understand these people, we, we, we kill them and we imprison them and somehow they still multiply. That is the attitude that should inform how we act in the world. And it should inform how we act in our personal relationships. We can think, in our calling to be salt and light, that we need to go around condemning people and badgering them. 
We can think that when they speak ill of us or criticize our faith, that we need to go on the attack and stick it to them and show them who's right. But if we are to follow the example of Christ, our calling instead is to rejoice and be glad in our suffering. To rejoice and to be glad and then to suffer for them and repay their evils with kindness. To surrender our power and instead to love them. So what are we doing here? We as Christians are on this earth with a purpose. We're to be salt and light, to fight the rot and decay, and to shine the light of God's goodness and truth in our words and actions. And we're called to do that purpose as a peculiar people, a prophetic community living together in love and testifying to God's truth, even when it seems like the world doesn't understand it. And we're to do all of that with the posture of Jesus, the posture of a suffering servant to give ourselves up in love, to surrender our power and take up the cross. And here's the thing, that sort of life can change the world. It has changed the world. It is faithful saints on that same mission, with that same posture, that built the church as we know it today. And it is faithful saints on that same mission, with that same posture, that will continue to build Christ's church until the day he returns continue to bless the world that we live in in the meantime. So may our prayer be that we are such people. Would you pray with me? Oh God and Father, I acknowledge, Lord, how easily and how often um, I am guilty of failing to be salt and light. I acknowledge to you the times that I am willing to not show forth um, your truth, to not, to not let my life be transformed, to look so much like the world. I pray that you would forgive me, Father, for this. That you would forgive all of us and help us more and more to seek to live in this world, showing forth your love and grace and power. pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now I'm grabbing the piece of paper I accidentally left down here. <laughs> Friends, We are preparing to celebrate um, the table of the Lord this morning. And just a word of, of explanation before we do. Um, so I have this, this ring on my hand, right, that my wife gave to me when we were married. And she has this ring on her hand that I gave to her. And because we're kind of old-fashioned, when we gave each other those rings, what we said was this ring I give thee in token and pledge of my constant faith and unending love. In token and pledge. And that, in many ways, is one of the best pictures I know of how we think about this table that we're about to come to, as token and pledge. This table is a symbol, a token, of Christ's work for us. It is an opportunity for us to recognize the body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ poured out. That it, as we see the loaf break, as we see the cup As we taste them, we get this physical picture for us of the reality of Christ's suffering and death. But it's also a pledge, a promise. It is not just a chance for us to reflect on what Christ has done, but it is God giving us physical signs and symbols that we might have them as a seal on our heart of the reality of what he does in Jesus Christ. It is his pledge to us that just as Jesus Christ did these things, so as we trust in him, these things are ours. 
That's why I think we have physical elements in the sacraments. Because as you taste that bread in your mouth, and as you feel it go down your throat, you can say, as surely as that, if I am in Christ, then his body and blood were given for me. As surely as that, if I am in Christ, then I am forgiven. It is a good and beautiful thing for us to believe. As we prepare to come to the table, we come as those who are trusting in that work of Jesus Christ. So as we prepare to come, would you say with me the words of the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In Jesus Christ, only Son. Amen. That's the elders that are going to help us administer the sacrament come forward. So because of that, because this is a token and pledge, that means two things. It does mean if you are here and you have not moved towards Christ in that way, if you have not made him your own, that know that we are so glad that you are here with us this morning and that we welcome the opportunity to spend time with you, to get to know you, to learn from you and hear from you and, um, and love you. But um, we do ask, this is the one part of our worship that you not participate in. Not because we mean it to be an unwelcome thing, but simply because we believe that this is a thing that Christ has given to his bride, the church. And for you to act it out with your hands, without being a part of that, with yourself, it just doesn't do anything. It's of no benefit to you. It also means, though, that if you are Jesus Christ, regardless of what church you are a part of, what denomination you are a part of, if you have been baptized into his name and trust in him as your savior, that this table is for you. That this is God's token and pledge that he has given to you to remind you and stand as a promise to you of his constant faith and unending love. So if you belong to Jesus Christ, we're going to invite you to come. As I received it, so I tell you, On the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, and breaking it, he said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this as often as you eat it, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, said, This is the cup of the new covenant, and my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. God and Father, I thank you, Lord, for the surety of the promise that we have in Christ Jesus, that even as we seek to follow after him and to live as citizens of his kingdom, that it is he who we truly call our hope and trust, that it is his body broken that enables us to stand as those broken before the world, that is his blood that nourishes us along the journey as we are called to be salt and light. I pray that you might feed us with Jesus and be near to us in him. Amen.
A practical note, we are going to be taking the Lord's Supper by intinction. We will be standing out front with the elements. I will have gluten-free elements in the center if that would be of service to you. Otherwise, rip off a piece of bread and dip it in the the juice, and then um, you can eat it there as you go back to be seated. We will move to the center aisle to come forward and move out to the outside aisles as we sit down. But come, friends, knowing that God's promises are true and that Jesus Christ is for you. Come with joy in your hearts.